0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and my guest today is one Sherry Duggar, who has, among other things, uh, nearly two decades of experience in editing uh, magazines and books, which she now puts those skills to her media and public relations work in the agricultural field. So prior to joining the organization that she now uh, serves as an executive director for, which is called socially responsible agriculture project. Believe me, this was a new one to me, but there's Quite a few of you out there. Um, uh, she also worked at uh, as an executive director at Women, Food, and Agriculture Network and the Indiana Farmers Union uh, as a policy and communications consultant for the American Grassfed Association. We all know those guys. As a Midwest outreach consultant for Earth Justice. Know them too. And as a rural affairs consultant for the Humane Society of the United States, which we all really know well. Um, so you did your job really, really well with the communications on those organizations, Sherry. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> we all know what they are. Um, So thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. Of course. Let's start by talking about socially responsible agriculture project, which as I said, was a new one on me, but I caught a quick clip. I think it was on Facebook of you testifying um, in front of Congress uh, with regard and along with many other activists about the farm bill. So first let's talk about SRAP and then we'll talk about the farm bill.
2: For sure. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate talking to you today about the work that we do. So, um, yes, sure. uh, socially responsible agriculture project is a national nonprofit organization. Uh, we call it SRAP, uh, SRAP, whatever you want to call it. So, I may be okay. referring. Throughout uh, the conversation today, but we uh, help communities protect themselves from the devastating um, public health, environmental, socio socioeconomic damages caused by industrial livestock production. So, for about right. 20 years, um, our team has been working with uh, throughout the U.S. to provide this free assistance to any community that requests our support when facing uh, threats posed by factory farms or concentrated animal feeding operations. So, we mm-hmm. have a community support team that includes technical experts and independent farmers and rural residents who actually have faced um, these incoming uh, industrial livestock production operations firsthand yeah. so they really know you know the harms that can come from these operations they can provide technical and strategic support to the communities coming to us essentially in crisis mode um, wanting yeah. to know what they can do to protect themselves so we educate them mobilize their communities um, help them navigate regulatory processes engage with lawmakers etc and really just tell their stories um, to media folks like you so that's what uh,
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> I've had quite a few people uh, in in that role, uh, as independents, not working with your group, um, but people who have come on the show to talk about what happens yes. uh, when a, when a, you know, heavy duty, um, uh, company wants to bring a KFO into their community. And it's, you know, in some cases I had one woman who I, I have to say, I, I had to take her with a little bit of a grain of salt, but she described being physically intimidated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having these companies, I won't name names because she didn't name names, but you know, Companies like Tyson Smithfield, et cetera, you know, who were uh, dropping pigs' heads in her mailbox and, uh, you know, trash in their drainage ditches and spray painting their car. I mean, it was really quite a campaign of intimidation that she described around her own family and other families in her community. It was, it was, and that's not the only time I've heard that. So um, people like you are really invaluable. It's a very scary moment. And just to dwell on that for one more second, the reason it's crisis mode when people come into you is because of the very little amount of transparency that is required to file a permit to build a CAFO. Is that correct?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think the crisis comes oftentimes uh, in time. So if you think about it, a lot of these um, communities just learn of these operations that are coming in within sometimes 30 days, within sometimes three days. So it's essentially SRAP, you know, kind of operates like a a 911 (laughs) number, so Mm -hmm. to speak. Um, these folks are, they're facing this crisis. Um, It's oftentimes, you know, a very quick turnaround and we have to be available to them seven days a week to be able to try to answer their questions or just to, to, you know, help them understand that they do have rights and that they, they can speak up and that they can fight this. Um, Maybe, maybe it might be too late and the operation actually might be already coming in and, and, uh, you know, already has a permit, et cetera, or it's already there and it's polluting their communities. But there are Mm -hmm. other things that they can do, which we can talk about later in the conversation to really try to protect themselves and to hold these corporations accountable and to hold our government to account, to be able to, you know, to make sure that they regulate them and enforce that regulation.
1: Well, that, that, that that's the rub, my dear, isn't it? It's making the government actually enforce the regulations. We'll talk about that. Yeah. But I, I, I interrupted you as usual. I'm sorry. I
2: I wanted to just go back to what you were saying about the intimidation. Um, We definitely have folks on our team who have experienced that firsthand. Um, one uh, of our team uh, members has had um, her granddaughter's bedroom shot with a gun. Um, she's had oh multiple, multiple dead raccoons, I think, left in her, on her porch and in her mailbox. So, you know, um, it's, it's pretty serious stuff. And there's, there's really, you know, intense um, intimidation that can happen in these situations when, when there are such um, uh, big financial interests at play.
0: Yeah,
1: absolutely. Very, very interesting. We'll we'll talk more about that. But I want to just touch on for a minute, the coalition of advocacy groups uh, that made me notice you and want to call you, um, who were participating in the Food Not Feed Summit, um, which is sort of came together in anticipation of the new iteration of the Farm Bill, right? Right. So can you tell us a little bit about the group and what you hope to accomplish by your testimony?
2: Absolutely. So that was really a terrific summit of uh, lots of groups that came together with lots of different interests. So we had um, public health organizations, we had environmental organizations, we had family farm organizations. Um, uh, animal welfare organizations there were as you can uh, as you might know there the industrial um, agriculture system really harms all aspects of life um, yeah. and profits very few <laughs> um, and so you know we had a, a diverse uh, coalition of groups that wanted to come together to make sure that that lawmakers knew early on in this process um, when we're talking about uh, the farm bill for 2023 that there is an an intense and and very you know uh, distinct Need for subsidies to be shifted um, at a minimum to just align with government nutritional guidelines. Um, yet, you know, what we're seeing today, which has been a long, long um, process of, of industry backed uh, advocating and lobbying um, mm-hmm. to get support for subsidies to go toward industrial operations and interests. Um, but we're seeing the majority of government funding and um, taxpayer-backed programs uh, supporting the corporate-controlled livestock and poultry operations and, and production of grains, specifically like corn and soybeans, to feed animals um, right. rather than producing you know, healthy fruits and vegetables for um,
1: Americans to eat. Right. Well, that that is the thing. That's the food not feed means because you're not feeding people when you're making animal feed. Um, And I'm assuming that the ethanol program got folded in there as well, because that's all part of the whole sort of cabal of corn growers (laughs) to to take over the acreage available to grow anything
2: here in this country. There's a lot that that's, um, you know, pretty troublesome about about our system today, for sure.
1: So what so how do you see that playing out in the way the farm bill is written in this new iteration? Is it going to be that they will change the subsidy structure away from crop insurance and subsidizing, uh, you know, large commodity growers and in favor of small regional farms? Or what, what was your vision there?
2: Yeah. So we would like to think so. I mean, I think what we did um, when we were actually speaking with lawmakers on Capitol Hill that week when we were there in D.C. was really trying to get multiple voices telling their stories, telling their experiences and telling their knowledge from a professional standpoint. So we had not only independent family farmers there to speak to to legislators about the the. Um, the difficulties that they face in either accessing land or getting subsidies and, and support, and or even in transitioning um, from the industrial uh, model to a more sustainable. Mm-hmm generative model. So we had a lot of different voices. We certainly had a lot of voices of uh, farmers of color there who were talking about the, the discrimination that they face whenever trying to get loans sure. and, and funding and, and access to land for their operations. So um, there was lots of different stories that were told there and really looking at you know how we can shift some of these subsidies and, and support um, more diverse food and agriculture systems um, how do how do we actually transition as i said these farmers out of these um, industrial operations into more sustainable regenerative operations etc there was lots to talk about and lots that we didn't cover i will say that for sure yeah. we talked about it from every angle with folks you know coming from all of those different angles who who all align on what we're trying to to ask for and, and really, you know, honestly, what Americans um, want, uh, are, are calling for as well. And that's an, a system that uh, doesn't pollute our environment, doesn't uh, impact our public health, that actually does provide the the, you know, the healthy foods and fruits and vegetables that we actually need in our diet.
1: You know, I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a minute, because when you say Americans want that, yeah, they want the idea of the bucolic family farm, right? But they don't want to pay the price. They don't want to pay what it actually costs to raise livestock, for example, on pasture. Um, The reason we have such incredibly cheap meat is because of the extraordinary lengths to which we've gone to subsidize uh, the industrial agricultural complex, and uh and to you know, I mean, people love their 299 a pound chicken, right? I mean, how are we gonna like I don't see the the the, the model changing all that significantly uh, until we have a sea change in our public, approach towards procuring groceries. (laughs) I mean, to me, that's like the fundamental problem is until we have enough political will amongst the people, we're not going to elect representatives who represent that that mindset, right? I mean, so do you think, do you feel like the Biden administration can stand up to the corn lobby, the pork producers council, the, you know, NCBA, are they going to say, all right, (laughs) you guys, enough with the, you know, with the price controls, enough with the, with the colluding. I mean, it's, they're totally corrupt anyway. Right. So, (laughs) I mean, I'm an old cynic here. I'm just like, I just want to see them get better absolutely appreciate it and agree with you to a
2: large extent i mean I, I can um i can uh be cynical as well um i would and i will say that you know you if you think about it, if we're trying to just move the needle, um, a lot of the conversations that we had uh, with uh, agencies when we were in D.C. just recently were really, to to be honest with you, were really uplifting. We met with Andy Green at USDA. We met with the Department of Justice. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot that actually is being done within this uh, administration to move the needle, I will say. There are protections being discussed to try to help protect contract growers, production contract growers, for instance. There are there are, you know, they know that they have to shift funds to start to build regional and local food centers and systems to be able mm-hmm. to provide um, distribution and processing, you know, opportunities and actually access to market for these independent family farmers in much the same way that they, um, you know, make very possible for the industrial scale um, operations. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know whether we're moving the needle or blowing up the whole system, <laughs> you know, I think, uh, you know, there's legislation out there being proposed like uh, Cory Booker's um, farm system reform act, which really calls right. all of these really great things to build a new food and agriculture system. Cory Booker gets it, you know, very few lawmakers yes. um, are out there who are like Cory Booker uh, talking about the issues and who really deeply understand how important this is. Now I want to go back to something you just said Um Sure. You you said Americans don't want to pay the cost
1: of right. They don't want to pay a twenty dollars chicken. Okay. So let's
2: talk about that because when you think about it, they are paying the cost in diversity, yeah, uh, (laughs) ecosystem collapse. You know the the potential really dark um, realities of uh, what our industrial agriculture system is doing to our world today. So when you think about you know the deforestation and and all of the mm-hmm. things that are happening with um, the industrial system and, and the public health. I mean, you look at the pandemic and, and COVID nineteen and the p- possibility of um, antibiotic resistance and there's so yeah. many different um, arguments for what the costs are associated with this industrial model, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. You know everything. Um, sure, you would argue that they in fact are paying the cost. They just don't quite understand how they're paying the cost. So when we have these, is, these cancer diagnoses and, you know, all of the things that are happening in our world today are associated with the cost of our industrial livestock production system and people don't understand it, which is speaks to the importance of, of, I would say, um, you know, uh, radio shows like yours so. <laughs> <laughs> or an
1: effective communicator like you. Oh, let's pat each other on the back. <laughs> No, but I mean, you're absolutely right. The externalized costs are not what are before American people. If they knew that their $2.99 per you know per pound chicken was actually costing them 15 bucks a pound in all of the other externalized costs, you're right. They would yes. demand reform. Yes. But we haven't yet been able to communicate effectively. And I don't really know the answer. I, like I said at the beginning, I've been doing this a long time now. I don't know how to reach people. Um yeah. To make that information crystal clear to them that they are being hornswoggled, yeah. they're being bamboozled by these companies who say we must feed the world. Nine billion people are coming, and we have to be ready for it. Let's double down on these, you know, incredibly destructive practices. I just don't know how to break that cycle, so I'm I'm looking to you, Sherry.
2: <laughs> <laughs> if I knew the, the answer, if I had the silver silver bullet for that one, I would I would be pretty wealthy woman <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <No>. yeah right <laughs> you know we're not feeding the world now so let's just acknowledge that like we have I think right. in this, group, we've got one in four kids going hungry every day I don't know correct that is absolutely correct. Yes. You no, know, we're not feeding the world. And so, like, if we could just stop talking about that because we're absolutely failing at that with the system that we have today. So mm-hmm. I think what we do know is that um American farmers are resourceful, they're smart, they're resilient, you know, they've yeah. been through some really hard times. They will raise and produce food in the ways that they are incentivized to do so. And our government policies are they really offer the fastest and most effective way to encourage and incentivize, you know, sustainable and regenerative agriculture. So While I do believe that, you know, American consumers can help to pave this way by what they demand and what they ask for um, and what they purchase, I do think the policy is, I mean, our money, our taxpayer money is going toward that actually kill us. (laughs)
1: That's (laughs) right. um, Preach it, girl. That is exactly correct.
2: So I think, you know, it's a matter of people understanding it's like, where's their pain point? Is their pain point, you know, when somebody <laughs> is facing a capo that's coming in and it's in their backyard or is going to bring 80,000 hogs, if you can imagine, across the road from them within 800 right. feet of their home. Um, that's a pain point that, that will um, incentivize you, you might say, to pick up the phone and call SRAP and say, oh, my yeah. God, this is coming. What do I do? I'm going to absolutely fight it. Now, when we're buying a two ninety nine uh, chicken sandwich from whatever unnamed fast food restaurant, we don't understand the pain point of what that you know is associated with that two ninety nine chicken sandwich.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: I don't know if you're familiar with Mike Calicrate; he's a farmer and rancher. Oh, very—he's
1: very regular guest on this show.
2: So he's uh, ter- terrific. He's a mentor. Yes, he's actually, a wonderful there, person. Right? Yeah, he's a board member for SRAP, but he's also mm-hmm. just a friend. I would consider him a friend, a very good friend, and also a mentor to me from years, um, from the years oh, nice. that I at work. And one time, and I'm not gonna quote him exactly, but I'm gonna quote him well enough that I hope that you'll understand, he said essentially, if America or if people could taste the pain and the suffering of the animals that are raised in these systems—if they could taste Ooh. pollution that these systems cause in our in our local environments—if they could taste the the public health impacts and harms that are brought upon, you know, human lives from these industrial agriculture systems—they would never eat the sandwich or the meal that they're eating if they could actually taste all of that pain and suffering associated with that that burger. And so right. I think you know. I think that's essentially what we have to try to do is to figure out how to get people to be able to taste that in such a way that they can at least empathize with what's actually happening in order to get food on their plate. And they can, Mm. to the best of their ability, take whatever steps possible, even if that just means buying one protein product from someone they know rather than from the industrial system to make change and to call for something better.
1: Right, right. Very good words. All right, we're gonna take a short break here. We'll be right back with Sherry Duggar with S socially responsible agricultural project. Stay tuned. I can tell we're gonna have a lot more fun. <laughs>
0: This episode is supported by HRN business member Cafe Pana. Cafe Pana is an Italian-inspired ice cream shop serving daily changing flavors of house-made pints, scoops, sundaes, and affogados. Find Cafe Pana shops in various New York locations or order online at cafepana.com for ice cream delivered right to your door. That's C-A-F-F-E-P-A-N-N-A.com. Our thanks to Cafe Pana for supporting HRN's creative educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place.
1: So we back now. Let's talk about what you guys actually do. And that was so excellent, that quote from Mike Calicrate. I'm going to send him a note to tell him how great that was. I need to bring him back on the show. I love the guy. He's a great guest. But um, so when a community contacts you, to try to deflect the construction of a new uh, KFO, what what are the steps that they have to go to? And, and you know, tell us sort of, yeah, let's go through that process for a second.
2: For sure. Because
1: it doesn't always succeed, right? I mean.
2: Oh, no, no, no. We see probably uh, just as many losses as we do wins, I would say. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, we can talk about what a win actually looks like as well. Um, Please, I'm going to use the, the favorite answer that SRAP, uh, our senior counsel, Eli Holmes, <laughs> always uses with us when we ask hard questions about legal stuff. And she always answers with, it depends. So um, yeah. a community that comes to us is unique. So many of the communities we serve, you know, they're facing social, economic, racial injustices, all kinds of stuff is happening in those communities. These operations are typically cited next to communities that oftentimes um, lack the political will, the um, financial power to be able to actually Correct. fight. And so they're placed there on purpose. Oftentimes these operations are placed directly next to communities of color, low-income communities. You know, there's, they're doing this on purpose because they know these people are unable to fight back. Um, we exactly. have value and you know the individuality and, and lean on those um, unique perspectives of the folks that are coming to us to ask for help. So we want to be able to help them in what makes the most sense for their community in terms of what they're facing, the timeline, the skills, and the, the experiences that they bring to the table and their interests, quite frankly. So mm-hmm. when they contact us, our really, I would say our first job is to listen, um, to listen mm-hmm. to what they want, what they know, uh, what they're facing. Um what they believe their opportunities and weaknesses are, you know, we want to hear from them first in terms of like what's happening. And sometimes to be quite honest with you, that's really just like a a therapy session for them to be able to go, you know, what's happening, uh, what they see coming, what they're scared of. Etc. And so we can then go back as a team and strategize. You know, we've we've got um, decades of experience here, folks who have not only faced these operations themselves, but folks who really understand the the system, the legal system uh, like Eli does uh, on our team and, and other folks. And so we can understand sort of what what are some of the ways that might you know work best for them. Um, mm-hmm. Oftentimes, I think in the in previous iterations of SRAp, uh, some of the the team members would talk about throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing what fits. And we don't actually really believe that. We actually really want to think through and strategize. You know what makes the most sense for this community in this situation at this time. And so we'll, des- we'll determine the best path forward in collaboration with that community, given their wants and needs, their strengths, skills, you know, experience, timeline, challenges, et cetera. Um, there are mm-hmm. lots of ways uh, that these communities can oppose these operations. Um, without going into the weeds too deeply because I don't want to give away strategy, <laughs> they can right. they can their communities to speak up um, they can talk directly with legislators and, and lawmakers um, and regulators and, and actually uh, with media folks like you they can participate in the permit process uh, they can write letters to the editor um, they can file petitions and complaints we can help them do that um, we oftentimes uh, Eli actually speaking of her again she's um, giving some FOIA training so freedom of um, information
1: mm-hmm.
2: training on how to dig up you know the information about what's happening in their communities um, True. we can with lawmakers to help uh, them or to encourage them to adopt health ordinances that don't even use the word CAFO, but just might make it a little bit harder for a CAFO operator to come in and or operate in that community. So there's a variety of ways to oppose these operations and to stop them from coming in. Um, we we just, you know, it's, it's how do we either stop them, make it harder for them to exist, or hold them accountable at the very least for the pollutions and the harms that they're bringing to these local communities. We have a couple of other programs, if I can mention those. Those are um, our water rangers program. Uh, Water rangers actually teaches people to do water monitoring using EPA standards. So we can actually... Mm -hmm. um, how to, to, you know, monitor their water, not only before the operation comes in, but then while the operation is in existence, if in fact it does come in. And then we work with them to work with their agency officials to actually, you know, to be able to provide that data to them and, and to um, get them going on enforcing the regulation that does exist there. Um, we also have our food and farm network to really work with people sort of beyond that CAPO um, engagement, the initial engagement that they're facing, and to really advocate, uh, as we've been talking about, for a better food and agriculture system.
1: Right, right. Because, I mean, there is a lot, we're going to talk about that in a second, but there is a lot. you, You don't just transition out of being a cog in the wheel of the system. Uh, without some pain yourself as a farmer. But before sure. we go to that, <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about, because I know that, for instance, with some of the interviews that I've done around community, you know, with community members who have fa- faced off uh, against a uh, a big corporation like that, um, that, uh, that not everybody in the community necessarily is on the same page. And I wondered if you, like in a state like uh, North Carolina or Iowa, where a lot of the local income is very dependent on industrial animal Lag. Um how, how do you approach a divided community? Because that, that seems like kind of a big part of the, the that should be a big part of the process to get everybody on the same page. Are you able to do that?
2: I think what you're pointing to is one of the big problems of the industrial agriculture system in that, in fact, that it actually does divide communities. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> um, That's why I wanted to ask that question. <laughs> yeah, we see
2: it um, yeah. every day. You know, we know this system pits friends and neighbors against one another. I've seen it actually here. I li- I'm in Indiana, and um, mm-hmm. I've seen it here in my own state, how the system has divided families. You know, I've seen cousins yeah. doing because of the harms brought to their families and lives um, by these operations. So we know these communities are divided and we, don't, we just don't let that stand in our way. I would say we work with the people who are willing to organize, the people who are willing to speak up and to speak out about the injustices brought by these um, incoming uh, concentrated animal feeding operations. And we go to work with them to determine, as I mentioned, the best strategies and pathways to protecting their communities. And safeguarding their health and well being, and I, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's just a matter of like just when you go in, you know, you know that there's going to be yeah. folks that you know there's going to be folks for it, and you just have to figure out who's who and and try to determine the best pathways forward.
1: Right, absolutely. It's it's a really, it's insidious how uh, successful they are. I mean, I know that there are many hours of strategy devoted in the animal agricultural industry. I mean, I feel like. You know, when I talk when we talk about stuff like this, it sounds like we're talking like Hillary Clinton and the vast right wing conspiracy. But in fact, it really is. I mean, it's like they don't call it that, but that's what it is, people. I mean, these guys are having strategy sessions with their lawyers and their local elected officials and so on to make sure that they do pit a commu- you know, a, a communities against one another uh, or citizens against one another in order to support their ultimate goals. I mean, it is a really nefarious, I don't know what to call it. It's like what Rachel Maddow once described as mission creep. Like you think you're doing the right thing, um, but in the end you're really not. But you're sort of along, so far along on the mission that you've, you know, you've lost sight of what the actual greater good is going to be, I guess. I mean, I, I'd like to think that that's... A better explanation than people just literally, you know, a bunch of evil wizards getting together, yeah. you know, scratching yeah. their cones and saying, hmm, now how can we afflict the maximum pain on this community? Like, I don't really think that's what's happening. But in the end, that is what is happening. So when you go to, um oh, I wanted to talk about, you know, since we were talking about hog farming, especially um in Iowa and North Carolina, for example... You have a program that will help producers transition out of the KFO model. So we alluded to that a minute ago. Um, tell us about that program, and you know, sort of what happens then.
2: For sure, you're talking about our contract grower transition program, which is a fairly yes. new program. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Craig Watts, but he is actually a former contract grower, yes. um, also whistleblower on the industry. Um, I think
1: in former 2000- guest. <laughs> yes. Oh. You know, <laughs> i've had they, them all baby uh, it's amazing i haven't gotten to you before this yeah. i have literally had them all I, mean, <laughs> I looked at that list of speakers i was like oh yeah that guy that guy yeah i know all these people yeah.
2: okay he yeah He's one of my <laughs> heroes um and luckily i get to work with him so he's on the, the socially responsible agriculture staff um right. and he is actually uh he was on our field team uh providing a lot of that community support that we've talked about here but also mm-hmm. um when I first came to SRAP in early 2020, in April of 2020, I, you know, I, I did my rounds of talking to all of the team members, you know, just in general, getting to know them and 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 chatting and, and trying to figure out what they wanted to do uh, here at SRAP. And so I asked him just randomly, you know, I was like, Craig, what's your dream job? And I was like, no wrong answer. You know, you don't have to say right. SRAP. You want to know what your dream job is. And he said, you know what? Honestly, I'd like to... Um, lead a team of people like me who, you know, I have gotten out of the system and to be able to manage them and to get them advocating for better food and agriculture systems. And I was just kind of, I'm just like shocked. I was like, well, why are you, why don't you do that? (laughs) Let's do that. And so from that, you know, just very brief conversation in the very beginning, we started really thinking through, I started talking to funders and and interested parties Mm -hmm. other organizations about like, how can we, start to help contract growers either stuck in this system to transition out of it. And and as the conversation has gone on, how do we actually stop them from ever going into it? Because as you mentioned, the industry is quite powerful. They are pervasive. They are persuasive. And they yes, can go they and really talk these folks into getting into this system. So not only, you know, so, so let's talk about a couple of different things if I have time.
1: Um, yeah, you do. Go ahead. The,
2: like craig um and this is why he wanted to get out they're being exploited every day at the hands of you know these three giants Uh, they control everything in this consolidated and concentrated system so all of that concentration and vertical integration they they control multiple stages of the production process which allows them to manipulate the marketplace um, trap farmers in these contracts that are terrible for them they can push down the Prices paid to them, and they can really drive you know the other independent farmers that we work with in communities out of business. So this system that does all of these terrible things that that most people just eating a a, a chicken wing
1: from a cheap chicken don't think about, right? But this <laughs> is the I mean, this is specifically the poultry industry right now we're yeah. talking about. It, it
2: is every I mean, to be honest, it's but most-
1: the hog, the hog industry is pretty much the same model. Yeah.
2: So not only does that system um, do all of those terrible things, but it's really easy to get into it. So they incentivize these farmers to to get into that and to take that path for that uh, industrial agriculture model. Um, And it makes it very difficult for them to get out because in the process of getting in, as Craig did, as many other contract growers have done, they end up getting themselves in a whole lot of debt. So they get stuck in that system. From the beginning, and it's like a, a treadmill of of debt that they're on. From then on, then you know, then on. So in the beginning, yeah. a production contract sounds terrific. I mean, I've talked to a lot of farmers who think that like it's a guaranteed income. They think that that's going to be a means for keeping their kids on the farm or bringing their kids back to the farm. You know, mm-hmm. the, the industry really um, explains contract production in a way you know that it will it will help them gain financial freedom. You know, or from hardship on the farm that so many farmers know, because it's a struggle yeah. to be an independent farmer, and so sure. um, they they buy into it. So how do we actually, you know, get the message to them that by the way, there's a lot there's a lot more there to that story that you're not actually hearing. Um, part of the problem also is that we've got government agency officials, we've got banks, we've got you know the integrators themselves, we've got these inter- industry front groups, a few of whom you've mentioned already. Mm-hmm. Really, also selling these these folks on this idea of financial freedom and and you know um, guaranteed income and easy
1: money. Basically, and, they're it, selling I, easy money.
2: Right, and also I should also say, realtors are out there trying to sell these farms to these people to get them. So mm. everybody who's selling them this story about what contract production is going to look like, actually is going to benefit financially from them joining the system and from the success and expansion right. of the, this industrial system. So so I don't think, you know, a lot of these, these contract growers potentially who are thinking about going into that system understand that everyone who's talking to them has something to gain
1: from them mm-hmm. going to it. And uh, that we- is such a good point, Sherry. That is excellent. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so then we've got the government policies at every level, essentially that are that are also, as we've mentioned, subsidizing that kind of system. So that makes it super easy to go into, um, providing you know not only um, lax regulations, so it makes it easy for them to exist and operate, but also those financial incentives, guaranteed loans, all of that kind of stuff is is there for them to get into it. They're led to believe that all they have to do is show up every day and work hard, and they're going to make some big money, and it's going to work. Yeah, um, you know. Uh, so, I mean, that does work for a few people and the industry certainly props up those few people and make sure that they keep their houses really clean and they can take videos in there and talk about how wonderful and amazing the system is. But for the majority of folks that are out there, they're struggling. Um, I think, uh, last I heard, I don't know if it's still this way, but 70% of, of poultry growers who are, who are, you know, raising poultry, um, as their only source of income, they're living below the poverty level. Um, so, you know, this is, Insane. The system is. is really crazy. The the exits, you know, the pathways for exit are are limited. Um, we know that from the research that we've had done to try to build out this program to help contractors right. get out of it. So we're looking at, you know, like how can we potentially provide them debt relief? How do we find um, get them into contact with other organizations that can provide um, opportunities for alternative crop production? You know, we've got farmers like Craig actually uh, is growing mushrooms in his. Barns that where he used to raise chickens.
1: Oh, no kidding. Really? That's so interesting. Because I was going to say to you, like, one of the biggest problems for a guy who's transitioning out of, you know, say, poultry or hog production is that the stranglehold that these companies have in terms of process, slaughtering, processing, distribution, they own that piece. And so if you are an independent guy, uh, you're going to have trouble getting the birds for starters. You're going to have trouble with where to slaughter your birds and process your birds and sell your birds. So that's, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me when you say that Craig is no longer farming poultry, he's farming mushrooms now because he, you just can't break into that. There is no independent system. And that's what the Biden administration is supposedly going to be addressing, right? Is the consolidation of the industry. We'll see what happens. Um, Do you guys help anybody sort of fund or develop those essential services? Do you see any venture capital interest in developing those alternative uh, processing and distribution models?
2: Yeah, if you haven't talked to David Leon at Farmers Footprint, you should get out and reach reach out to him. Uh, I will. Definitely he's in that realm of of the money that's they're looking at how to um, support regenerative systems and how to, to put some of that money in, you know, in the on those pathways forward. Certainly, mm-hmm. SRAP, that's you know, that's a little outside of our mission um to try to build processing and distribution and things like I that. I understand, first, but we absolutely you know, I mentioned the Farm System Reform Act. We support legislation that, that really talks, speaks to and is trying to incentivize those types of um, you know, building out those types of, uh, systems. And so we will participate that way. We certainly will amplify messages and narratives mm-hmm. for other organizations. And really it's about, so what we're trying to do when these contract growers come to us, we work with a contract grower advisory group. We've got about 10 folks that are either still in the system or are recently out of the system that are helping us to essentially design this program out. And what uh-huh. we're doing is, um, you know, what we want to do is to be sort of, I, I describe it all the time as like, a you know, uh, um, airport traffic controller, you know, a contractor comes right. to us, and says I need this or that or the other thing. And then we try to figure out where we can connect them to either the money to the other organizations that are out there to support them, to help them, you know, do something different. And, um, and, and, or if they want to go into advocacy and become like a new Craig Watts, then we'll look at how, what we can do there and, and what organizations that we partner with might want to hire a contract grower, former contract grower. So right. we're just you know, like like I said, not only how do we get them out of that system, but then we also want to really focus some of our efforts on um, how do we keep them out of that system. You know, the, one of Craig's dreams, I think, and some of our other growers is like, how do we do the math for them
1: before they ever go mm-hmm. in
2: and sign on the dotted line, and so that they understand what that math actually looks like, and that it doesn't play out.
1: Right. Yeah, that's the main thing. It's like, let's, let's game this out a few years here, folks, especially given the upgrades that are being required by the, you know, processing company, or the uh, integrators, whatever. Anyway, Sherry, we don't have a lot of time left here. So nope. I want uh, you to tell people how they can get in touch, uh, learn more about SRAP, uh, you know, promote your, promote yourself, promote your organization.
2: Absolutely. So they can come to, um, you know, uh, SRAP, it's, uh, SRA And, uh, we have a newsletter sign up there. They can sign up for our newsletter, stay in touch with us. Um, certainly, you know, look for us on social media, um, at SRA project on, I think it's on Twitter and Facebook and all Instagram and all the (laughs) popular social media sites. But, you know, you could find the staff on our, on our website and and contact us through that. And and, um, we've got the help hotline. We've got all kinds of different ways that people can get in touch with us. And so um, there's an 800 number as well. So I, I would just invite anyone who wants to either advocate on behalf of Better Food and Agriculture Systems to to come to us and, and find out ways they can join our Food and Farm Network uh, programming. And then also, if somebody's facing one of these operations coming in, to please, please call us because we're here. We offer this um, support for free and we can do as right. much as we possibly can to try to help these folks protect themselves.
1: Fantastic. Cherry. thank you so much. I'm sorry we didn't have more time. I had more questions, but have, that just means you'll have to come back. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank this has so been much. a really big, a great conversation. Thank you very very much for your time. Uh and thanks to my sponsors as always for supporting this show. We'll see you next week folks. I appreciate you tuning in. So long for now. What doesn't kill you food industry insights is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network.